1: Hi, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. Welcome, and thank you for joining us. I just finished talking to Ben Schmidt about his new book, Inventing Exoticism, Geography, Globalism, and Europe's Early Modern World. This came out in 2015 with the University of Pennsylvania Press. Now, this is a book that looks at the invention of something that Ben calls exotic geography in a very particular context, um, in the context of the Netherlands, um, in the early modern period, in the decades around 1700. And he's arguing here that even though this is produced by um, Dutch geographers, um, printers, and other figures, what's happening is actually the production of a European aesthetic, of a European perspective. So it's really, really interesting. And what the book does is it's bringing together, among other things, material approaches to kinds of objects that otherwise may not be put into dialogue. So we have here attentiveness to printing um, and print to books. We have attentiveness to paintings, to other forms of images, to maps, both as commodities, as purveyors of meaning, and also as decorative objects. We have attentiveness to ceramics and furniture and lacquerware, all bound up in a, a single comprehensive approach to this topic. It's a really, really beautiful book as well. So the features of the exotic geography that Ben is depicting here um, are multiple, and you'll, you'll hear us talk about some of them in the moments to come, but they included the affectation of a kind of seemingly neutral, or as he puts it, apolitical approach to affairs in the world beyond Europe, a very distinctive style which presented the non-European world as, as he puts it, a vast intermingled hodgepodge of exotic peoples, places, and things, this hodgepodge, um, this sort of mixing being really key, and As a result, um, as he puts it, this generated powerful, iconic images, powerful stereotypes of the non-European world, which were kind of cliches, exotic cliches, that endured well into the 18th century and after. So this is a book that's really interesting if you are particularly... Um, interested in global studies and early modern studies and visual culture, material culture, the idea of the exotic, or even just um, illustrations of and descriptions of some really fascinating works and some really fascinating figures. So I hope you enjoy. I hope you have a chance to get your hand on the book as well. The images, which we didn't obviously have a chance to reproduce for you in this podcast medium, are very striking and are very, very much part of the argumentative machinery of the book. And I hope you enjoy the conversation. Thanks, as always, for listening. I'm here today to talk with Benjamin Schmidt about his new book, Inventing Exoticism. Welcome to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society, Ben, and thanks for making time to talk with me and for producing such a beautiful book. Welcome to New Books in STS.
0: Uh, thank you. Nice to be here. Great.
1: So, Ben, could you start us off uh, by saying a little bit about how you came to the field? So specifically, what brought you, um, broadly speaking, to the history of science and to early modern studies um, of the Dutch context in particular?
0: Well, the second part's easier. I, uh, I did early modern history As a graduate student, and I did not have any idea that I would turn to things Dutch. Uh, But uh, two things happened. First, uh, I came to graduate school and worked at Harvard when Simon Schama was in his heyday there. (laughs) Uh, So he made uh, cultural history very exciting, but more particularly Dutch history, which is what his uh, first big book was on. His first book was actually on the Dutch in the 18th century, but then he wrote Embarrassment of Riches uh, before I came to graduate school. And that was very exciting. Second, I was doing uh, early modern cultural history, doing literature and visual things as well. I did a field in um, in literature and I did most of my teaching actually in art history. And the Netherlands in the 17th century was just so productive when it came to culture, uh, literary stuff that people don't tend to pay too much attention to, uh, but also visual materials, uh, material arts as well, which is something that comes out in the book, and uh, but, producing all sorts of things, and I guess on the point of producing, I can speak to history of science. Mm-hmm. I became uh, interested in my first project in uh, geography and uh, ways people saw spaces. I became interested in the second project the inventing exoticism uh, quite a bit in ways things were made. And I became interested in looking at atelier practices in terms of uh, print, but also in terms of visual materials and then artifacts as well. So material culture. So I guess Ways of Knowing, which is also the – was the uh, uh, title of an anthology that I did with Pamela Smith. I think it's called Making Knowledge right now. But Ways of Knowing became very interesting. To me, and uh, I looked at that across several fields, including here's the science, but geography, uh, ways of knowing about space and where we are within space.
1: Great, thank you so much. And I think um, for those of us who work on early modern contexts, right? And I think we've talked about this a little bit um, in other and um, other times, but what actually constitutes relevance for the history of science, medicine, and technology is an extraordinarily broad field, right? So I think a lot of us, um, and myself included, really define what we're doing often in the context of ways of knowing or forms of knowledge-making. Um, so it's, a, it's exciting to have you here as another early modernist um, as part of the channel. So the book argues that between the mid-1660s, roughly, in the early 1730s, as you put it, a new form of exoticism developed in European ateliers, and you just um, invoked that a little bit, in particular, um, in particular in those of the Netherlands. Now this happened thanks to a series of successful products in a very broad range of media that, as you put it, engaged with the non-European world in both word and image. So you've already talked a little bit about what brought you um, to this project and particular, but can you say maybe a little bit more for us about how this fits within your overall research trajectory? Why for you was it important to write a book-length object about this topic in particular?
0: Yeah, so my earlier work, I've been interested in geography, cultural geography, ways we see different spaces, and also ways we articulate identity through uh, our uh, what Edward Said called Poetics of Space. And my earlier work, which was very much centered on the Netherlands and Spain, had to do with how the Dutch defined themselves through their engagement with space. In that case, it was uh, the New World or the Americas, and how they really engaged uh, quite uh energetically with geography, writing about the new world, writing about the Indians, about things from the new world. And that's the way geography normally works. It's really a very interested project where we project onto other spaces uh, what we want to see there. What was very striking to me is uh, that book uh, was on the 16th century into the mid-17th century. What was very striking is at the end of the 17th century, their sources began to change quite a bit. (laughs) And it was no longer about America, uh, a kind of version of America that fit a Dutch national uh, propaganda, a Dutch national discourse. But they began to write about exoticism. And exoticism is a fascinating topic. Everybody at all times has their version of what exoticism is. But this seemed to me a particularly important and a pivotal moment in the history of exoticism because it was not only the uh, articulation of what the exotic world was, it also was uh, correlatively an articulation of what Europe was. Mm -hmm. And I began to see two things going on simultaneously. One is these works about exotic other. We know that from wide varieties of literatures, but the other was the articulation of a European consumer of these materials, uh, what I call in the book the Homo Europeus, which actually takes from uh, uh, Cooper and Stoller's work on uh, exoticism in a later period. Mm -hmm. So I became very interested in how the world was seen at this very important moment, how the world was consumed, and also the European consumers of these uh, books, images, and uh, material arts And it seemed to me, like I say, a really important moment, what I like to call the post-Columbian moment, the period after kind of the engagements with America in the 1492 through 1650 period, more or less, and the pre-Saidian moment, the moment Edward Said writes about from the mid-18th century. That in-between moment seemed to me uh, not yet uh, sufficiently explored.
1: Great. Great. So in the introduction, you talk a little bit about why this particular moment, right, um, saw these transformations, and you also introduce um, something you just talked about, the creation or the construction of um, a, of Europe and a broadly European perspective. So as you put it, this was also a really important time in the context of the Netherlands and Dutch history. Um, this is a moment where Dutch colonists are kind of letting go of earlier notions of territorial empire and they're creating and, and in part the geographers um, and we'll talk about um, who those um, uh, people are and what that means. The geographers are helping to create this new sense of the overseas world, right? So... We've talked a little bit about why that time. We've talked a little bit about why Europe. Can you, for listeners who um, maybe don't know much about Dutch history in this period, talk a little bit about why the Netherlands? What was happening in that particular Dutch context at this time that sets the stage for the kinds of transformations in geography that we're going to see for the rest of the book?
0: Right. So the Dutch had what I uh, called a few moments ago, a very interested version of what the world was. Uh, It was an idea of the world that fit very much their own national narrative about their war of independence, which they fought against Spain beginning in the 1560s. They reached uh, de facto and de jure independence in 1648. And that's also about the high period of their territorial uh, imperial moment. So they have empire in the West, in the New World, in the space we now call New York, New Jersey, uh, parts of Connecticut, and also in the Caribbean and in Brazil. People forget about that Brazilian chapter. So they have this big empire in the West, and they're also expanding in the East. But things kind of take a turn in the mid to later 17th century when they begin to lose parts of that empire. In fact, they lose everything in the West. Uh, they pretty much go, uh, uh, literally bankrupt. The West India company goes bankrupt and they still retain colonies in the Caribbean, but, uh, not terribly ambitious, uh, colonies in terms of territorial expansion in the East. It's not quite as stark, but they begin to cede ground to the English and French. And at this point, uh, they begin to produce works that emphasize a kind of broadly European perspective on the world and a perspective that was appealing to consumers like the French and the English, and for that matter, almost all of Northwest Europe. And I should say that in talking about the definition of the European in this period, I'm talking about uh, what would become in the 18th century, the idea of Europe, Northwest Europe, Spain and Italy kind of fall out a bit. They're uh, no longer in the kind of heat and thick of things uh, in terms of European politics. Uh, the Dutch, though, one thing I will say about kind of a Dutch historiography that I don't really write terribly much about in the book, but there's a notion that the Dutch Golden Age comes to an end pretty much with the death of Rembrandt. So that would be in the 1660s. But in fact, they're uh, remarkably productive in a lot of different ways that don't get attention. And one of them is in the field of geography, where they uh, find a market niche they create incredible books that become the standard throughout Europe. They create images in the form of prints and maps and also are incredibly active in material arts. So things like ceramics, lacquer, uh, and also textiles. Mm-hmm.
1: So this actually um, produces, and these forms of production and this activity produces, as you argue here, a new form of geography. So the rest of the chapters of the book are going to take us through that process and take us into the different media and contexts and forms of circulation that made that possible. The first chapter considers how geography was produced in published textual form in Dutch ateliers. And this is a really important chapter for many reasons, but among other things, in shifting our attention away from um, the kind of presence that I think many of us um, usually associate with printed books, the author, and shifting us toward the importance of um, what you call alternately kind of editor slash printer slash booksellers, impresarios of print in the book, right? The entrepreneurs, as you put it, of exotic geography. So in this context, um, the chapter's arguing that bookmakers, right, these impresarios of print, are creating this new genre of geography and and as a result, a new way of looking at the world. You make a point here that early modern books are not written, they're produced. They're not authored, they're manufactured. And this is happening in a very well-organized Ateliers. So I'm going to now hit the ball back to you. Um, Can you maybe take us into this a little bit? Um, For you, what's important for us to understand about this larger point about books not being authored but being manufactured and the figure of this impresario of print in making this happen?
0: Yeah, so the chapter begins actually with one of the great ones, uh, a guy named Jakob van Moors. And uh, it also begins with one of the most important books that comes out of this period uh, by someone named Johann Neuhoff. And uh, Neuhoff's book is cited uh, just endlessly. Uh, you may know it, Carla, from your work in Chinese history. It's also the source through its prints of uh, – it really is the instigator, Shinoiserie. And, and Neuhoff did go on a very important uh, uh, embassy. He goes to uh, Beijing. He never meets the emperor, despite the emperor being on the cover of the book. Uh, but his book and Van Moore's role in it illustrate perfectly how these are really uh These are processes making books. Books are manufactured. And the books, I would say, are processed themselves. Not quite the way cheese is processed, but uh, (laughs) you can think about all the funny things that go into it. So Neuhof's manuscript uh, is massaged, of course, but it's also uh, mixed in with many other different manuscripts. Uh, The authorial voice is changed utterly by uh, the atelier. And then the prints themselves are not only... Dramatically changed, but supplemented at least by as many prints as uh, Neuhoff himself, who was a draftsman, uh, made on his journey. So, what you get in the end is not so much a guy, Johann Neuhoff, going on a trip, but you get an authorial figure, Neuhoff, whose words have been much changed and whose, uh, whose voice has been much changed. And you get less a journal than a description less a narrative of an individual going to a place than a broad sweeping view of china and all the interesting things there you get uh, what the dutch call a describing and what we might call a description and ends up being the the format for geography in that period <laughs> and it's the intervention just uh, when uh, to throw one more word out there, the entrepreneurial intervention entrepreneur being somebody who comes in between entre it 's the entrepreneurial intervention of this of this printer publisher bookmaker figure that makes these things happen, not at all the author, not at all the figure on the title page.
1: Okay. Now, you raise the importance um, along these lines when you're getting really getting into this in the chapter of notions of, in, in addition to entrepreneurship, interest and credit. And um, you talk about the importance of an expression of interest um, in exotic geographical narratives. Now, along the lines of what you've just um, been describing in the particular case of this particular book, right, and the transformations from a kind of narrative um, to this other sort of object um, that's very much about... About, uh, these images, among other things, you talk here about the uh, really kind of a change from what, again, um, many listeners might assume about travel accounts. Now, in the context of the production of these kinds of texts, in some cases, it's the distance, right? The distance of the account from the firsthand experience of the traveler that was actually considered a good thing. And so can you talk about that a little bit? Because it's it may run counter to what some listeners um, assume about like autopsy and right the trustworthiness of a firsthand account. That's actually not really what was going on on here in these published works
0: yeah in uh, geography wanted to be interesting but without being interested in other words it wanted to be something that was appealing that the reader wanted to read or see often it was the case that you would look at the pictures uh, just like in national geographic today but you didn't want to give uh, in these works at least a sense of your interest in that space and again, I, I go back to the notion of a European format rather than a Dutch. These are not – these are Dutch books in terms of where they're made, but the European in terms of their consumption. And the European reader did not want to read about Newhoff and the and the Dutch East India Company, what's called the VOC. He didn't want to hear about their successes. He or she wanted to see or read about wonderful things going on in China. So the – individualness the interestedness of a person like Newhoff is effaced it's stripped away and what you get instead is images and ideas about a space rather than about narrative across time you don't get the i went i saw i did you get in this space there is and in fact, that kind of passive voice and that kind of uh, descriptive mode of writing is what characterizes these these works, along with the prevalence, uh, as you noted, of of images and pictures. Pictures being an incredibly important instrument to make the book seem appealing, or to make it not seem appealing, but to be appealing, and also uh, this, I think, you alluded to as well, to give a sense of what things were like in this faraway, distant space.
1: Mm-hmm. And, and you're bringing up actually a beautiful way to transition to what's happening in the next chapter, right? So as you say, uh, as you just said, and you say in the book, the appeal of these works is based in part on how they looked. Um, and how they looked had a lot to do with not just illustrations, but at their appear- um, with their appearance in general. And you take us in in this chapter before moving on to the next one, to the importance of um, aspects of a text that many people might overlook or just kind of blitz through, which is paratexts. Now, a lot of people have been um, putting a lot of effort into understanding the importance of paratexts in the history of print, the history of manuscript culture, um, in, a, in a broad uh, range of contexts right across the early modern world and beyond. Now, here in particular, you're paying special attention to the aspects of paratexts that are explicitly visual, and that is the frontispieces of some of these works, so for you, um, what is important for us to understand about the kind of performative work that a frontis piece is doing, in order for us to understand um, the point you want us to get about paratexts and their significance here?
0: Well, the frontis of uh, for Dutch works were incredibly lovely and beautiful. <laughs> there are many of them uh, reproduced in these volumes of uh, uh, in in the book, but. Um, Uh, works of geography were framed and opened with these incredible Baroque uh, pastiches, all sorts of uh, things swirling around. They're really terrific to look at. What they do, along with the other paratexts, the indices, the chapter summaries, the marginalia, is they offer a way for a reader to not read the book, paradoxical though that may sound, Uh, reading the book and that kind of close attention I I don't think was actually the object of these books. These were, I like to say, uh, coffee table books at the dawn of the age of coffee. They were big, lovely things. And you would look at that opening image, the the frontispiece, and uh, you would look at other parts where you could easily kind of stop other pictures, other paratextual devices, And all of this kept you from reading about this or that specific commercial or colonial encounter that might have been described in the book. In fact, the book strips away a lot of those. But one way or the other, it was more of a – it was a different notion of reading. I think it's very akin to what we would think of today when we think of a coffee table book and how one approaches that. Uh, The beauty of the book, the cover of the book, the entree to the book means a lot more than all those uh, words that one might get caught up in if one actually read these books. Mm -hmm. And these books are physically very large. They're uh, not all of them, but uh, a lot of these are hard to handle or rather hard to handle in a way that you would actually read. And uh, I don't think that they were intended to be read. That message you get right away in the opening in the kind of allegorical images that you get on the on the cover in the frontispiece.
1: (laughs) Mm hmm. Now, it wasn't just that images per se um, were important, and um, of course they were. You talk about, uh, in the second chapter, the kind of exotic geography that you're describing here as an ancestor of National Geographic, right? But images were important in a very particular kind of way. The second chapter moves us from these texts and reading to pictures and looking more generally, and it shows how pictures weren't just important, but there was a distinctive look, a distinct instinctive kind of what you call brand identity um, that really characterized the sort of picturing that was happening and the performance of picturing that was happening in these works. Now you've already alluded very briefly to the distance in these works between the kind of work that was happening in the text, the sort of narrative work, the narrating, and the kind of work that was happening in in the illustrations, which was much more about description and about place. Um, Because this is actually really important in this chapter, can you talk a little bit more about this and specifically about what you call the timeless quality of images um, how we kind of understand these images as i depicted or not a particular situation in time and and what's important for us to understand about that to understand um, these works more generally
0: yeah so uh, just take a step back in terms of time uh, the traditional way that um, geography had worked, geography was famously called by Artilius, the eye of history. And it was supposed to be uh, work in tandem with history and give you a sense of uh, someone going somewhere and through time uh, doing stuff. Time and space work together. Uh, these books work very differently. Uh, they take out all of those um, what you might call chronologies of a trip or chronologies of of being in space. You don't get Columbus went here and he did this, that, and the other. You get the new world looks like this and here are the plants and animals that are there. Now, the images often, uh, not often, almost invariably focus on the things of the exotic spaces and very rarely depict what we might think of as political events. They're not um, newspaper clips of uh, this or that uh in imperial or colonial interaction there are plants there are animals they're commercial products that are traded and in fact part of the look of these uh of these um prints is almost a catalog type style depiction of different commercial commodities that you might uh hope to get from different spaces, uh, and these books entice you with pictures of them. So it could be antiquities that you might get from uh, the Near East. It could be uh, beautiful silks and whatnot uh, related to China. It could be shells that was one of the most common ones that might come from the Indian Ocean, and so on and so forth. So rather than looking uh, through time and chronology, they looked across space And rather than emphasizing human interactions, although there are lots and lots of images of of humans, they emphasize things, things that could be had in overseas uh, places.
1: Mm -hmm. Thank you so much. Now, one of the things I really like about the book is that in each one of the chapters, there's a kind of twist, right? There's something about the narrative that you're telling that really upends how we, and and by we, I mean even those of us who spend a lot of time in early modern studies, understand or assume um, uh, things happen, right? When we're looking at books and we're looking at this period of history um, across space and time. And one of the twists that happens here in this book, or in this chapter rather, is embedded in how you're describing the case of a particular figure. This is Cornelius de Bruyne. Am I correct uh, to
0: that? De Bruyne, yeah. De
1: Bruyne, okay. So Cornelius de Bruyne um, is a figure here that uh, we actually met in the first chapter um, in part because um, he's he used color um, in his work in a really interesting way. But here we meet him as a figure who brings a very painterly perspective um, and approach to the images that he makes in his books on Um, or his work on Asia Minor and in part, ironically perhaps, because of the, um, the approach that he gives to rendering the images in his book he's actually his trustworthiness as a, a, an imager and a source of knowledge is kind of questioned, right? And so can you talk a little bit about him in this case? And how do we, through understanding his case, understand something interesting that's happening in terms of trustworthiness and imaging in these works?
0: Yeah, Cornelius de Brown is an absolutely fascinating figure. I don't think that there is anything like him in early modern travel literature. He was an incredibly well-trained artist. He'd worked uh, in the Netherlands and then down in Rome, which was not uncommon for Dutch artists to go to Rome and and work there. And then he travels and sketches, uh, and he produces just superb uh, first Uh, drawings and later engravings of the non-european world two books one has the name of uh, asia minor the other which has the name muscovy is in fact the one that covers persepolis and the antiquities that we would think of as uh, not quite asia minor but certainly in the middle eastern world in any event he creates these uh beautifully produced books he participates himself in their production. It's not self-publishing, but he has a very strong role to play in in how the images look and all that. And they're also uh, abundantly illustrated, 200 images in one, 300 in the other. These are large double folio uh, prints, unlike anything that had uh, appeared until that time. And uh, he makes the best images by far of Persepolis. He was there. He spent a lot of time. He drew uh, and then he came back and created these fantastic images. And this gets him into hot water. His images don't look like those that are done by other uh, travelers who have got higher rank than him, other travelers who are uh, better integrated into the Republic of Letters and travelers who've got greater credit than he does. And there's a brouhaha over this. Uh, he's uh, in the in the pamphlets. They say that they're actually arguing about this in the markets, if you can believe it. So people really care about their images of Persepolis back then. Uh, uh, but long story short, uh, he uh, he wins in the short term in the sense that his images. He went there. He saw, and he. He uh, reproduces the images are the best and they're reproduced by in other editions and by other art, uh, other publishers who appropriate his images. But in the uh, scholarly discourse, he is denigrated despite having been there and kind of loses the, the war despite having won several battles. He loses the war in terms of the trust and the images and his ideas of Persepolis. And it brings uh, it brings out an argument that I make in regard to another important uh, figure in all this, somebody named Georg Rumpfius, who creates images, although he himself is blind. Mm. And the point in both the cases is that the semblance of sight, the idea of the traveler seeing, is something that's created. It's the traveler doesn't actually go and see and recreate, but the traveler represents. Himself, and it's mostly himself, although Maria Sibylla Marianne would be an example of herself as being able to see. And the semblance of sight turns out to be way, way more important than sight itself. So that Cornelius de Brown, the guy who goes and sees and sketches, is in the end, like I say, he loses the war in this, uh, in this scholarly debate. And somebody named Georg Rumphius, who does these incredible uh, – sorry, who, whose book has – I almost lapsed into the same mistake as the early modern did <laughs> – whose book has these incredible reproductions of uh, naturalia from uh, from uh, from Asia. He, who is blind, is credited with being a great witness of the natural world, and he gets great credit for his – images in his work as a natural historian, despite not seeing anything.
1: Right. So again, I mean, this kind of reemphasizes the importance of the theatricality, right, of imaging, the performance or performativity of these pictures, um, I think, really, really nicely.
0: Yes, I would say the performance of seeing or what I call in the book, the semblance of sight.
1: Semblance of sight. So as we move from this to the next chapter, we move from imaging to specifically looking at imaging the figure of the non-European body. This is exotic bodies, sex and violence abroad, and there is lots of sex and lots of violence in this chapter. Um, So as we move through this, um, you're showing us here that in texts, in pictures, and also in the material arts, and we'll be talking a little bit more directly about the material arts in the next chapter... Late 17th and early seven, early 18th century geography characterized the exotic body based on three primary features, and we'll talk about some of these in turn. Sensual allure, a capacity for pain, and racial ambiguity. So the chapter spends a lot of time on these, and we'll sort of go through them um, to the extent we can. Now, first, sensual Allure, As you're showing here, there are a lot of different ways that the sensuality of exotic bodies is manifesting. Um, in some cases, it's manifesting in the context of a sort of um, simultaneous, as you put it here, revulsion and fascination with sexual perversions. Um, sometimes it's manifesting more generally in terms of bodies in the context of market transactions. Um, and it, 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 sometimes it's manifesting in other ways. So for 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 you, um, thinking back on this chapter, what's for you um, really most important for us to understand about the way sensual allure is characterizing exotic bodies in this context?
0: Yeah, so I think I would start by saying that um, there's kind of a geography of sexuality or geography of perversion that you can see in these sources. That as you move away from Europe, you get this kind of Uh, lustfulness in terms of images, in terms of description. At one point in the chapter, I write about an author who uh, writes about his own uh, wanderlust using the the English-Germanic form of the word wanderlust, and he himself writes about his lust, not his lust, but the lustfulness that are in these uh, bodies that he sees. But uh, Europe obviously has um, sensuality, sexuality, homosexuality, uh, and all of these things, though, are so much more easier displaced to the non-European world. Part of this is a way of saying that this is a place where, you know, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, what happens in the exotic world stays in the exotic world. But the other uh, part of it is to create in these bodies a kind of Different European, uh, sorry, a different body. This is uh, the chapter leads up to racism, Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, this is a way, uh, as I uh, try to argue, of softening the non European body and priming it for a whole series of things. First, to be a site of uh, of kind of uh, what Europeans call perversion, but second, also to be a site of, of a kind of violence to the body that. Of course, it takes place in Europe, which really knew how to torture, uh, but is being displaced like perversion to other spaces, uh, to non-European spaces.
1: Right, and you're showing, I think, very compellingly in this chapter that the motif um, visually, right, as this is depicted in the sources that you're taking us into, the motif of pleasure of, or of allure is very much intersecting with and in, is of a piece with the motif of pain. So the exotic body, as you just mentioned, is very much a site not just for pleasure but also for pain, and you take us into many cases in this chapter in which this is happening. Now, there's one very... Um, yeah. <sniffs> powerful account um, that's highlighted in this chapter, and this is an account in a work from seven, uh, 1676 of a Central Asian man who's flaying, um, uh, skinning for um, for listeners, his unfaithful wife. Now this is an extraordinarily gruesome story. It's an extraordinarily powerful story. And it's powerful not just because of the nature of the narrative, but also of the images um, that are uh, being used in depicting this narrative and the kind of story that the images are telling so for listeners could you take us into what you take to be some of the most important aspects of this particular story of this central asian quote gentleman right right Um, who flays his wife why do why do we need to know about this and what do we need to understand about it
0: Right. Well, it's a horrible story. Uh, it's uh, a horrible story in terms of the the violence that is uh, described. I'd say what's most horrible, probably uh, horrible, is probably the way it is made into spectacle. And that's a really important part of how sexuality and violence takes place in these sources, that it's something to be seen and something for Europeans to look at as voyeurs in, in many ways. So in this story, we're in uh, we're in the Caucasus in what's today present-day Azerbaijan, and uh, it describes uh, a woman who's meant to be uh, in a seraglio, uh, one of many wives, uh, or yeah, I suppose wives of a, of a person who's called uh, generically a uh, Persian, implicitly a Muslim. Uh, the woman's crime is never fully clarified, but she's suspected of some kind of sexual impropriety, or at least it's, it's implied. And he punishes her. He punishes her by uh, by flaying her, by stripping her body of its skin in a, a gratuitous way and uh, ultimately killing her, but first putting her through this, uh, these gratuitous steps of violence. What to me is most striking about it is that there's an image of it, that this is something that uh, Europeans would never depict any kind of violence like this uh, closer to home, in this time period at least, but they seem to revel in this kind of uh, horrible, horrible violence uh, inflicted onto this woman's body, which is shown. Uh, She's shown bare-breasted, she's shown uh, in a terribly vulnerable position, and she's also shown, of course, in a moment of, of agonizing pain. She's also shown in a domestic interior, which has all the trappings of, uh, of a kind of bourgeois life. And it's shocking. But the shockingness is not in Europe. The shockingness is outside of Europe. And like I say, Europeans had tortured with the best of them and still tortured with the best of them. But what's happening in these sources is the European – Horrific torture had been associated up until 1648, more or less, which is the end of the Thirty Years' War, with confessional violence, with Catholics and Protestants killing each other, essentially, and torturing each other as well in the process of killing them. That's no longer happening. or if it is happening, it's no longer being publicized and being used as part of the propaganda of the what I like to call the uh, you know the civil war that's being fought in Europe over confessionalization. By putting it in the non-European world, first, Europe is taken away from these horrible acts of violence. These are non-Europeans uh, who are committing these horrific things, but they're also doing it to non-European bodies. Something like this of course happens with the African body in the seventeenth century into the eighteenth century, and that's part of the story of of slavery and how slavery is excused in, in the history of the United States. Uh, but it's happening here, you see the beginning of what I called just a few moments ago the softening of the exotic body and the suggestion that this body can endure horrific pain and that this body is is not important in a certain way, the way the European body is important.
1: Mm-hmm. I think um, one of the ways you put it in the chapter is that this is um, collectively images are not just softening the exotic body, but also in a way priming it for imperial control, right? So this is a way of sort of priming or preparing the exotic body um, in, in the context of imperial power.
0: Right, and, and just to, to add one more example that comes shortly after that in the book, there is a slave moment, and that's this uh, this absolutely beautiful uh painting with a beautiful figure uh, by a painter named Albert Eichhaut. And it turns out that from the drawings, we know that the figure who was uh, the model for this painting was a slave. And then the drawing, we see the mark of slavery on her, the the branding, in this case, uh, using a hot... Uh, item to brand her with the mark of her owner, but this uh, confluence of pain and pleasure, this kind of beautiful figure in, in her case she 's um, semi nude and and the violence of slavery brought together in that image in a sense is a variation of the of the stripped body we see of the Polish woman I just described in the in the Azerbaijanian case.
1: Mm-hmm. Thank you very much. So I wanna ask you um just a related question about technology, right? Now you mentioned um in the kind of introductory parts of talking about this chapter the significance of these images in the context of a kind of voyeuristic gaze right this this, these pictures of spectacle so as somebody who's writing about pain and torture and someone who's writing about images of and sort of using and taking us through these really really violent um really powerful and very very shocking um images of pain and torture that are you know can be very difficult to work through how are you um Navigating for us, your readers, this line um, between you know thoughtfulness and a voyeuristic gaze. How are you approaching your own treatment of these materials as you think about you know how to narrativize them in a book um, with a, a kind of attentiveness to helping us? not be voy- voyeurs, right, to helping us have a more thoughtful engagement with this very shocking material. So I'm asking you, um, in short, about your approach to depicting pain and torture from the perspective of you as an author um, in this context.
0: Yeah, it was very hard to write. It was hard to write about uh, the kind of um, violence to the body much more than the sexuality the sexuality uh i should say the first part of the chapter is about sexuality but uh in the beginning it's uh, the voyeurism that you know might take place in 21st century tv (laughs) uh early modern europeans having a different uh kind of uh i guess um, uh, lower threshold for that sort of stuff but as the chapter moves along it did get very hard to write about this kind of violence i tried very um, I guess I, I try to bring it back to the normative things that are happening in the images themselves, the way the images try to, to make normal what is appalling and to try to juxtapose those. So in the image of the stripped woman, uh, the flayed woman, I mean to say, uh, the fact that we get what is essentially a, a Dutch bourgeois interior with the ceramics and furniture and uh, furnishing furniture and, and things that you would not be surprised to see in another kind of print and to bring this kind of odd contrast uh, you know into sharp relief. the other thing that is striking about all these images is the way that they build into them the spectator. They are voyeuristic. they invite the viewer to be a spectator along with others who are watching and I guess we're implicated. Uh, The chapter, though, does then take this argument to race and racism and the kind of things that this leads to. I I said at the very beginning of our discussion that uh, this is kind of a pregnant moment, the pre-Saëdian moment. It's also a moment uh, when slavery is about to to launch in in a large scale. Slavery being present, of course, throughout this period, but the large scale uh, amplification of slavery in the Americas uh, takes place around this time. So I... Try to make these speak together—the uh, violence that's happening in these images that we're watching, and the violence that will take place on a kind of industrial scale in the economy of the Americas. Um, but it doesn't—it wasn't uh, writing. It was not terribly pleasant.
1: <laughs> and imagine, thank you, um, thank you for bringing us into that and for sharing that. So let's move from pain back to pleasure, shall we? <laughs> you. <laughs> let's move back to pleasure. So as we move to chapter four, we move into a chapter of that looks at the identification of the exotic world with desire and with pleasure. So this is a period, as you remind us early in this chapter, where exotic places really became consumable things. So China became China. The Ottoman context became the Ottoman. You know, where um, many listeners may be familiar with japanning um, as, as a term for describing lacquerware and a certain kind of uh, procedure for producing that. So the chapter turns its attention to the material or decorative arts which really borrowed, as you're showing really beautifully in this chapter, exotic motifs, techniques, and materials. And the chapter is arguing here for the fruitfulness of putting these, what might be considered two disparate contexts into dialogue and creating a conversation, and that is the histories of geography and the history of the decorative arts in the last decades of the 17th and the first decade of the 18th century. So I want to just maybe start this off by you know, hitting the ball back to you again. Um, for you, what are some of the most productive conceptual, methodological, practical, historiographical contributions or kind of innovations that can come out of putting geography and the decorative arts into dialogue and kind of seeing what results from that conversation?
0: Right. It's a kind of two-way street, both of them. Uh, Yeah, the chapter tries to put them together to show how both of them speak to each other in, uh, I think, methodologically really interesting ways. Geography is, of course, the science of delineating different spaces. And geography is uh, meant to uh, show here this is what China is like. This is what uh, Brazil is like and so on and so forth. But what does it mean when uh, images used for China are from Brazil and vice versa. What does it mean when you get the kind of conflation of spaces that take place in these works that I'm describing in the book? Uh, The material arts, often called the decorative arts, are meant to be just that, decorative They are meant not to have any kind of uh, narrative uh, uh, power. They're meant simply to be uh, these pastiches that, uh, you know, mix and match and grab all sorts of different things from around the world. Well, it turns out that uh, geography uh, mixes and matches and grabs all sorts of things from all around the world, at least in the form that was so popular and so uh, commonly consumed in this period, and that the decorative arts – Borrows from these works of geography, and in some cases, actually enhances these images by making them more narratively powerful, and uh, make them more, um, you know, clear and easy to read than one would think. Just as geography, in some ways, is more difficult to read, the story is not so clear. What's going on? The ideology, as I try to explain in the book, is is kind of effaced or hidden. Decorative arts, uh, which borrows from some of this stuff, sometimes enhances uh, the images to make them more powerful and more direct and clear. A good example might be the um, the image of the great Khan, mm-hmm. who comes uh, straight from uh, that Newhoff book that I mentioned in the beginning. And that image becomes a, a very important uh, bit in material arts and decorative arts to make arguments about uh, oriental despotism.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Uh, the Khan is shown in, in, in on desks, on ceramics, on vases, on uh, uh, punch bowls and things like that, but not in a merely decorative way, in a way that actually makes a case for how the great Khan does have power and rules over over large parts of the world, over men's bodies, and so on and so forth. So there in the decorative arts, we get a story. Uh, in the geography, though, uh, where we get uh, the Great Khan, uh, we also get works about China, which are clearly not at all about China, not at all about people going to visit the Great Khan and, and witness this uh, this Oriental despotism that's then uh, being depicted on the cover. So one is a little bit less narrative. The other one is a bit more narrative narrative. And it turns out that they operate in, in similar ways when you look at uh, atelier practices and things like that.
1: Right this chapter is really great. So for listeners um, who are listening to this who don't already have a copy of the book in front of them, the images in this chapter really beautifully take us through and show us the um, replication with modification of this iconography, these stereotypes, right, as you as you call them alternately in the book, um, that really move across different media, across different material contexts, so that we're not only following your argument through your text, you're also allowing us to see um, visually in this very amply and very beautifully illustrated chapter how this is happening um, so we can appreciate it on that level as well. So You're showing here um, that in addition to the con, um, and there are some others images of mendicants of particular forms of violence um, images of parasols you're showing that exotic stereotypes of various sorts are moving across genres and media most often from two dimensional arts like books or the cartoon on maps to three-dimensional arts like ceramics and textiles and furniture. Um, So listeners will be reminded that maps in this context are not just narrative. They're also decorative, right? A map was a decorative object um, that you would put up um, in your living space Um, And you take us through this context where these stereotypes or icons are replicated. So replication becomes a really important motif um, across this. So one of the really interesting things about this chapter, given this larger context, is you talk a little bit about how... And why this is happening. So for listeners um, who might understand the fact that this is happening, can you tell us a little bit about how? What are the um, processes, what are the material contexts that are making possible and making desirable this kind of replication of stereotype and iconography across these very different kinds of material contexts?
0: Yeah, uh, that brings up an issue that uh, hasn't yet come up, and it's really important, and I'm surprised that I haven't mentioned it myself, and that's kind of the commerce in all these uh, mm-hmm. objects and products. So these the, the manuscripts that had pictures were very, very valuable, and they uh, ended up through the market in the Netherlands, and the Dutch... Uh, Ateliers were using manuscripts that might have begun with Jesuits, might have begun in Spain and Italy, all over. Once they're in the hands of these – the bookmakers that we spoke about earlier, they then have this uh, incredible life because once once it's out there, then these images would be used for other purposes uh, again and again and again. And that means that uh, to speak to the maps in particular, an allegory of America could be used to represent Africa, this kind of conflation of space being absolutely no problem and also uh, being a commercially viable strategy because it works. A stereotype is a word that comes from the economy of print. It's when the printer uses uh, something, they create a stereotype and use it again and again and again. It's like a set piece. And the reason they do that is it makes financial sense. turns out that map makers had no problem using images that were meant to represent one space for another space. So represent America uh, with an allegory that then could be shifted over to Africa. It also meant that uh, a mendicant who was meant to be in a Chinese scene showing – originally religion and asceticism a mendicant is somebody who, who begs and borrows uh, who well not so much borrows but begs in a religious context uh, that that figure might then be part of a circus performance this is the economy of the workshop and that it moved across not only maps and books and prints but also into the material arts so i mentioned punch bowls desks mm-hmm. tapestry and so on and so forth and it was I think incredibly clever how these uh, how these uh, workshops operated.
1: Mm. Right. And you talk about um, sort of specifically the way that pattern books right may have been used. I mean, there's just this really interesting kind of source brought to bear on understanding the material culture and the visual culture and iconography of this early modern context that I think is really, really productive and um, encourages hopefully listeners and readers to integrate more of these um, kind of raw materials and kind of source materials that might be more germane to the decorative arts into how we're writing histories of imaging and figuration and narrative in the early modern world more generally. So look at those pattern books, um, look at these, you know, materials and you might be able to tell really interesting kinds of stories about, as you call it here, um, transmediation and and the sort of circuit circuits of icons iconic circuits and yeah their kinds of movement and um, that are really fascinating
0: yeah iconic circuits actually comes from your field that's a, an that's expression Craig that, Clueness, right? that's Craig Clunas yeah. right develop that and uh Uh, in in his work he was talking about the way icons moved from usually uh, print to print or at least two dimensional sources. Uh, Transmediation is I guess my way of uh, developing that a bit further and thinking about how these images move across uh, media often from the two dimensional as you pointed out before to three dimensional and how meanings change when this happens and uh, yes by all means I think we have to work more with material arts and also think of material arts as uh, not as decorative. Of arts, not as something that's merely decorative, but as things that convey some of the same kind of argumentation that a picture can convey, but by dint of being in a different medium, conveying it differently and often with a different, uh, uh, with a different point and with a different argument.
1: I mean, it's really interesting how a lot of this is moving us more and more toward performance studies, right? If decoration is a form of performance and printing is a form of performance and figuration more generally is a form of performance, then more and more um, thinking about these um, different modes in conversation with one another really, I think, helps us to and pushes us toward um, thinking about what we're doing in the context of staging and performance and performativity. And it really makes a lot of what we're writing as early modern historians into not just histories of discourse but histories of practice um, where we're able to locate practice in kinds of space that may not be obvious but I think can be really illuminating and the book does this really beautifully
0: Right, and uh, uh, I I guess that would be a way of bringing up one more thing in that chapter that's utterly fascinating and that's the way uh, these images of violence that are broached in the chapter on the exotic body end up in the what we call the decorative arts so what does it mean to be in a in a room that's intended for sleeping what we would call a bedroom and having wallpaper uh textiles around you that show images of of torture of uh decapitation of 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 lashings and so on and so forth and it gives you a sense that uh as as we historians often say the past is a foreign country Uh, they do things differently there so uh, you can have uh, a drinking cup with a decapitation. You can have a textile in a, in a, in a chamber intended for sleeping, what we would call a bedroom uh, that shows a, a caning and things like that. So, yes, <laughs> we can definitely uh, think of, uh, of, uh, of a much broader uh, archive for us to consider and also the, how these work in their various uh, uh, spaces to go back to space.
1: That's right. And it also, I think, emphasizes the point that kind of the, the meaning of images is not self-evident and trans-historical, right? I mean, the, the viewer or the reader really creates the meaning of the image um, in an important sense. And so um, taking us into the different ways that that sort of looking as a generator of meaning is happening in these different um, material contexts, I think really helps us appreciate that and, and see and think with images anew. Thank okay. you. So, Ben, um, there's also an epilogue, right, that brings us out into kind of further into the 18th century and beyond, and we don't have time to talk really substantively about a lot of things that are happening in this epilogue, but I want to at least, before we come to our conclusion, um, ask you to kind of talk about one of the important points that's happening here. There's a backlash that you're showing here against exotic geography, and a call for more um, order and method um, is a phrase that I think that's used in the geographical description of the world. Now, you make a point that this approach toward um, or advocating for more order and method is coexisting, right? It's not supplanting this exotic geography with its chaos and um, disorder. It's existing alongside it. But it is important, I think, for us to understand that there is this contrarian view that's emerging in the context that comes a little bit later. So can you maybe talk about that um, a little bit for us? What's happening in terms of the of a call for more order, more method, and what's important for us to understand about that?
0: Yeah, so the book describes how the world is made into a chaotic mishmash uh, through these sources. And these sources are being produced from the 1660s. Uh, well into the 18th century, the book stops around the 1730s, and it uh, argues in the epilogue that the backlash against it are the men of penetration. Those are not my words; <laughs> those are from the source. Uh, in other words, these Enlightenment figures who are trying to make order of all this and and reject the kind of chaotic world that's been produced in these books, these images, and so on and so forth. But what's interesting is, as you as you point out, these. Images, these sources, they continue and they persist, although they're gendered. Uh, they become uh, ladies' amusement. That's the title of a book that uh, gives us chinoiserie imagery. They become something for uh, those who who are against order and method. And what's very interesting to me methodologically, to jump back to the beginning and and people like Said as as well as Foucault, is that when we talk about the 18th century Enlightenment project, we tend to focus – we tend to accept the view of these uh, men of penetration who are arguing for order and method. And we tend to forget the aesthetic of exoticism that had been created. And if we do look at it, we just dismiss it all as chinoiserie. And I think seeing the long lineage of it, seeing how it's been created over these several decades and seeing how uh, impactful it was and how pervasive it was, ought to offer, I think, a caution against uh, accepting a kind of Foucauldian notion that the only thing that exists in the 18th century is the backlash literature, is the literature that says, let's make, let's get rid of these pictures. Let's get rid of this uh, chaotic uh, intermingling of spaces. (laughs) And those sources definitely persist. And even uh, I think in, in the book, I talk about one specific work on China, which you may know by Duhald.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, Duhald, uh, who writes a great description of China and is one of the authors of this backlash, incorporates on his frontispiece the very iconic Dutch image. This goes back to what we spoke about in the beginning, Newhouse, the frontispiece to Neuhoff's book with the Great Khan. That is on his cover. So he's deeply indebted to this other kind of geography, even as he rejects it.
1: So, Ben, thank you so much for making the time. Um, now, we're almost at the end of our time, and of course, even though we've talked about a bunch of things and all the chapters to some extent, there are a million billion things that we didn't have a chance to talk about, right? From some really powerful imagery, to some really fascinating um, works that you take us into, to some interesting conceptual points. But of course, we can't do everything. <laughs> Given that, though, is there anything in particular um, that we didn't have a chance to talk about, but that you'd like to mention for listeners
0: uh, well, I think the first thing I'd like to say is thank you to you, <laughs> since you did a terrific job of uh, bringing out so much of the book. Uh, the, uh, the one thing I would say is the book is divided in a way that uh, I think readers can dip in and out fairly easily and read about uh, books and textuality. That's the chapter that we spoke about on books, about seeing and, and images, about the exotic body and race, uh, and about uh, the material arts in the final chapter. That it, it, it does work in a way that allows you to come in and out. And I think you did such a great job of weaving it all together in your questions that uh, hats off to you.
1: (laughs) Well, well, thank you. It was a pleasure. And I think the book is written in a way that's so clear that it makes my job easy. So Ben, now that the book is out and congratulations on that, what's next for you? What's currently inspiring you?
0: Uh, So we were talking about this before. The book has been in production for a long time or was in production for a long time so i've had some time <laughs> to to think about new things and i uh, ended the, the final chapter uh the one on uh the decorative arts and material arts was uh done while i was at uh, in residence at the vna the victorian albert museum and i really got into material arts so what i'm working on now uh i'm working on uh Objects that mediate, uh, I've been doing a bit of uh, what Bill Brown calls thing theory, mm-hmm. but objects that mediate are, are different objects that have this interesting way of sitting between cultures in ways that we don't quite uh, expect, and also that the, the medium themselves, uh, its the media themselves are very important. So a couple of uh, examples, both of them by coincidence have to do with the uh, year neck of the woods, or at least uh, China and Japan. Mm-hmm. One is a fumie, the, the stepping on pictures uh, that were used in Japan uh, to make Europeans perform apostasy. So these would be images, usually plaquettes, so material objects that had a uh, the virgin on it or the pieta or uh, Jesus uh, Christ on the cross. And uh, both Europeans and Japanese were forced to step on this to demonstrate that they were not Christian. This was something the Dutch did with great pleasure because they were Protestants and did not mind stepping on an icon. But what's very interesting is the way the, the medium, the, the, that the Japanese ateliers were taking, in this case, Jesuit imagery and, and repurposing it so fundamentally that it's working against its uh, imagined uh, original purpose. So that's one of the, of, the, of the media that I use. Another is ceramics, which uh, was this great, great puzzle for Europeans. It was called the Arcanum. They couldn't figure out how to do it. It was quite uh, literally alchemy to them. They just couldn't figure it out. And an alchemist does figure it out in Meissen in 1710. And uh, this then leads to uh, a project to build a church, a chapel rather, completely out of Meissen, out of porcelain. So the Europeans appropriate this uh, Chinese medium, a medium that the Chinese have perfected and produced uh, so brilliantly over over centuries, uh, millennia, Uh, and uh, not quite millennia, but millennium. Uh, And uh, the Europeans then use it, and they take this... um, you know, this kind of pagan medium and make it the medium of the church. So there are several of these different uh, media that I use, uh, several different moments, but it's how uh, Europeans and the world. So again, it's the idea of Europe and the world are um, mediating their difference and how materiality becomes important for this process.
1: Well, that sounds awesome, too. So best of luck with that work and, uh, and keep me posted. I'll eagerly um, look forward to reading that also. And in the meantime, thank you so much for making the time for a beautiful book. And um, it's really been a pleasure, Ben.
0: Oh, thank you so much, Carla.
1: You've been listening to new books in science, technology and society. Thanks for joining us and we'll see you next time.